Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I was live at the 2023 Theology Beer Camp with Grace G. Sun Kim, Tom Ord, and Jay McDaniel. We chat about religious pluralism and process theology. You can get connected with Grace, Tom, and Jay and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Welcome, everyone, to the Engaging Religious Pluralism session. Uh, I'm so excited uh, for you all to be here. You, you all were obviously uh, accepted the lure of God if you're down here in the open relational stage. Uh, we're really, really stoked. Uh, and I love the fact, I used to be a youth pastor, so the fact that we're back in my roots here in a youth pastor basement uh, is the best. So uh, super, super stoked. Um, we'll get started here, um, and uh, yeah, I'll just introduce myself. Uh, and then we'll introduce uh, the other panelists. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I think at the beginning, they'll, uh, each one of our panelists will have a few words to say. Uh, and then we'll go into a little Q&A between um, uh, Dr. Grace Ji Sung Kim uh, and I. We'll have some questions. And then at some point, we'll open up uh, the floor for some questions from you all, too. So with that said, um, I'm Mason, uh, and I host a podcast called A People's Theology, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on YouTube now, too, if you want to watch my face talk with other folks. Uh, that's what I do do in the world. And uh, yeah, today uh, I'll introduce one of our first guests, uh, and that is Tom or Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Uh, and uh, I don't like there's so many things about you, Tom. Uh, and I feel like I've introduced you a million other times at this point. But uh, Tom is a theologian. He's a philosopher. He's written how many books now, like 20 or 30? Who's counting? Uh, he is a pro- prolific author uh, and uh, the the director of the Center for, or sorry, the director of Open Relation, the Center for Open Relational Theology, uh, and uh, and he's also more than anything, Tom is a dear friend of mine. So, uh, Tom, is there anything else I need to add to that whole description Sounds of you? Sounds great. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm glad. I'm glad we got that all figured out. Uh, last year, Tom and I were on a panel at uh, Theology Beer Camp, and he talked about his sex life. So we'll see if we get any more of that. <laughs> This year. <laughs> that's a high bar. I'm in the right one then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's Tom Ward. Okay, so my name is um, Grace Jisun Kim. So nice to be here with you all. So my podcast is called Madang Podcast. So everything, you know, all the other podcasts here, you know what it means, except for mine. So I'll just tell you how and what it means. So when I was coming up with a podcast, I had come up with an English word. And I Googled it and made sure there was no other podcast by that name. And then I got really ill. And I was hospitalized. And then I cannot remember the name that I had come up with. Like many other things, I cannot remember unless I write it down. So for months, I couldn't remember. And then just, 
out of the blue, the word madang came because I, I wrote about madang. Madang is a Korean word for, if I kind of say it in English, you're going to think it's like this majestic court, like a courtyard. But it just means in the traditional Korean home, there's a, a metal gate usually. Um, that goes around the tiny home. Maybe it's a two-room house or a three-room house. When you open the door, that um, and most homes didn't have grass. That dirt ground is called madang. Has anyone been to Korea? Oh, so many. So I don't need to explain. But anyway, so if you go in, and there's usually a low table. Because people, we sat around there and chit-chatted. We ate food. In a hot day, we will nap, and we gossiped around there. And then from there, you enter the different rooms of the house. So that is madang. So I thought, this is a stroke of genius. I will call it madang because I invite guests to my madang, and we talk. So I've got three children. My daughter said, Mom, you are so brilliant. <laughs> but my son said, mm. But anyway, I never listened to my boys. So anyway, so that's... That's my podcast, and it's hosted by Christian Century, so you can find it on um, YouTube, on Facebook. Mine is both video, too, so you'll see my face in every episode, <laughs> and on um, Apple and Spotify and whatever podcasts that we have. So I'm really excited to be here, and I'm going to introduce Dr. J. McDon- McDaniel. He may need no introduction, but he is uh, a retired professor. Is that my microphone? at Hendricks College. Um, He was a professor of world religions, and he does a lot of interfaith work. Um, And I think that's so important for us today, you know, in this climate of immigration and just everything that's happening in our world at this time. Um, He also is church-affiliated with the Methodists and the Benedictine. I don't know. And then... (laughs) And then um, church influenced by Buddhism. And he is the chair of the Cobb Institute and Center for Process Studies. He's also the editor of Open Horizons. And you can Google it and maybe subscribe. Do you subscribe? Oh, it's just a website. So you don't need to subscribe. But if you're into subscription, please subscribe to your podcast. And I think you have a podcast and my podcast. And I also have a loving, I have a subset called Loving Life. So you can subscribe to that. So you, you don't, we don't need to subscribe to yours. Okay. You need to get subscriptions. But anyway, that's, you can work on that later because I never knew the importance of subscriptions. But yeah, it's important. Um, and you are bringing process to the general public. And he's the author of six books. Are there any upstairs? No. You can't bring any? Okay, you don't need to buy his books, <laughs> but you can buy um, your books. And please buy my books. I have a broken leg, and I don't want to... I had them shipped here, and I don't want to take them back home. So bring... Yeah. Do you have a book? I don't. Okay, you, you can read his tweets, though, but anyway, yeah. They're all free, but you have to buy our books. <laughs> okay, I think that's enough introduction, that's right? Great. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we'll uh, hear from both Jay and Tom. Uh, and Tom, I think you're taking away, so tell everyone how everybody's going to hell except the Nazarenes. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for coming to this session. As Jay and I were emailing about how we wanted to work things, we thought we want to keep our talks about 12 minutes long, so there's lots of time for Q&A. And as I was formulating all of the things I would like to say in just 12 minutes, I thought maybe the easiest way is to put them on one little sheet. And I'm actually going to read this. Some of you probably don't have a copy of this. If, is there any extra copies that we could send the stuff, send to the people who just came in? No? Okay. Well, I'm going to read them anyway, so it won't be that big of a deal. Caesar, I'm calling my 10 principles for making sense of religions, because this is such a huge topic. We could go in lots of directions, and in the q and I'm sure we will, and Jay's going to say some additional things. So, 10 principles for making sense of religion. Number one, even the things I'm most confident about, I'm not certain about. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I think yesterday when I was speaking, the uh, book that Tripp and I are doing about deconstruction, the questions of certainty are at the very top. Most people begin a deconstruction process because of their lack of certainty or the things they used to be certain about, they're no longer. And when it comes to religion, I don't have certainty. Principle number two, I've changed my mind about religion before and I'll likely change it again. <laughs> I'm guessing a lot of you are in the same boat. You think you kind of know where you are, and then you have a shift. You have a change. And that's the way it is with religions for me. I grew up a Christian. I became an atheist. I started looking at lots of other religions. I came back to Christianity. Who knows what the future is going to be? Not even God. <laughs> Number... <laughs> Number three, I don't have a completely objective view of religion. I am biased. That was one of uh, Aaron's points earlier. I don't come to this as purely objective, and I can make these uh, uh, judgments about this is the best religion or the worst religion. I'm always biased. However, number four, my past influences but does not entirely determine what religions I prefer. There's a common saying, and Dan Koch, are you here? I'm going to pick on Dan if he is. He's upstairs. Dan likes to say, what religion you are is determined by where you were raised. And I think he's wrong. <laughs> in other words, a lot of us were raised, raised in one religion or one form of Christianity, and we switch teams. So our geography doesn't entirely determine our religious preferences, but it is the case that it has a great deal of influence. And so there's a partial truth there, but not a complete truth. Number five, religions change, including Christianity. Uh, I remember in graduate school when I started reading a little uh, Trelch, and this idea came around that actually religion and Christianity is not the same. Uh, I was looking for the eternal, timeless truth, and I thought Christianity gave it to me. Uh, the truth is, even Christianity has changed. Number six, Religions are not all climbing the same mountain. This is a metaphor in religious studies that comes out a lot. We say, well, you know, Christians, Buddhists, Confucianists, Jews, you know, we have our own path, but we're all going up the same mountain and we're going to be on top at the same place. No, I don't think so. I think Buddhists are up a different mountain. And that mountain is valuable and good. It's not a bad mountain and Christians are on the good mountain. There are different mountains, different religions are climbing, and there are intrinsic values in all of the major religions. That doesn't necessarily mean I think they're all the same value for myself, 
but I can find valuable things in all of the religions. Number seven, I like some forms of Christianity better than others. And I like some, I like Christianity better than other religions. I'll just put my cards on the table. I'm a Christian for particular reasons. I'm not a Buddhist. I find some things in Buddhism helpful. Jay's going to talk about his journey. But for me, I find the Christian tradition, at least some ideas in Christianity, preferable to other uh, religious traditions and some forms of Christianity, I just think suck. (laughs) Number eight, sometimes or some outsiders to Christianity embrace views that I find helpful. In other words, I don't think Christians got all of the truth and all the good ideas. I can embrace some things I find in other traditions. Number nine, this is kind of a weird one, but um, it's important to me. I have more in common theologically with some Muslims, Jews, Baha'i, and Mormons than I do with some Southern Baptists. (laughs) I happen to find a particular vision of God most winsome that I call an open and relational view. The idea that God is in real giving and receiving relationships with us and all of creation that we affect God and God affects us, and that we move through time into an open future, that even God is not exactly sure how everything's going to pan out, that we have real freedom but not unlimited freedom, and a host of other ideas. And guess what? I know some Jews, Muslim, Baha'i, and Mormons who also think that, but a lot of Southern Baptists who don't. So here I am, a Christian, who I look at my other fellow Christians, and I don't have that much in common with them theologically on these issues. It's a weird place to be in, but that's just where I'm at. Number 10, I am most committed to love. The logic of love leads me to think that a loving God actually exists and that God calls me and others to live lives of love. Just one little insight into my own Christian journey. I grew up and am still a part of the Church of the Nazarene. It's part of a Wesleyan theological tradition that has a... (laughs) Yeah, we'll see how long I'm going to stay in that denomination. See how long they'll keep me, let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, And we have a particular emphasis upon love. And I remember as a kid thinking, I'm a Christian and therefore I should love. I'm now to a place in my life where I think love is the most important thing. I start with love, and then I look to Christianity as the place that I think makes a lot of sense of of love, at least some versions of Christianity. And so for me, love comes first, and yet I'm still a Christian because I like many of the ideas in Christianity as they promote love. So those are my 10 principles. I'd love to hear your thoughts and questions when we have time. I really like Tom's 10th idea. Thank you very much. (laughs) So I grew up uh, a Methodist, and I I am a Wesleyan, and I do think that love is the most important thing. And I do think that I do believe in uh, a God who's at work in each human heart, uh, seeking to lure that heart into a width and depth of love. So that's the Christian part of me, and and, um, it means a lot. But uh, I also am deeply influenced by Buddhism, and I have many friends that, are, and I do a lot of interfa- interfaith work. Uh, I think uh, I have many close friends that are Muslim, 
I co-teach a course with a Muslim woman. I have been doing it for about three years now. It's online, uh, this version of the course. She's reading Rumi uh, out loud to about 50 folks that meet every Wednesday night. And I'm introducing process theology in response to Rumi. And I, I've taught upper-level courses on Islam, and, and I've grown to really appreciate aspects of it. So I'm a Christian influenced by Islam, too. And who can't be a Christian influenced by Judaism? I mean, really now. So, so obviously, the Jewish roots of Christianity, and, and Jesus was Jewish, as we all know, um, the lead, to my mind, one of the leading process theologians in, in the world is Rabbi Bradley Artson from the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles. And I think that his work is a brilliant version of process theology, and it's unabashedly Jewish. But I want to tell you a little bit about the Buddhist side of my life. Uh, I am uh, I'm a churchgoer. I go to a local Methodist church. Um, I'm also an oblate, which is a lay associate in a Benedictine monastery, a woman's monastery, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And I've always been drawn to the Benedictine image of, of simplicity and humility and listening as the heart of Christian life. So I, I could not be a Christian without my Benedictine sisters. But also, on any given Monday night, I'm going to go to the local Episcopal church and sit in Zen meditation with a local sangha. And the sitting, the quiet sitting in Zen style, uh, means a lot to me. And I hope that it's helped me better walk with Jesus. Because if Jesus is about love, love involves, among other things, being able to listen and to have a quiet heart and to be able to hear others on their terms, not just our terms. Now, how did this happen to me? Well, I sometimes call myself a recovering fundamentalist. And when I say that to friends, I describe a period of six months in my life, my senior year in college, when I converted to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> but I was a fundamentalist C.S. Lewis fan. I, I was very sure that, that mere Christianity was the answer to all issues. And I divided the world into those that knew the truth and those that didn't know the truth. And I happened to know it, thanks to C.S. Lewis. And, and I found myself becoming a person I did not want to become. The more I had certainty, the more closed my heart was. And I didn't like that, because I thought being a Christian was about walking in love as Christ walked in love. And here I was walking in arrogance. So I began looking around for models of Christianity that would be more open and for my part, I discovered the writings of Thomas Merton and, and the traditions of contemplative prayer. And that really helped me. About that time, I was going to seminary. In the seminary I went to, Claremont, you could take courses in world religions even as you took courses in Christianity. So I took a course in Buddhism. And I loved it. And then one day, my teacher in Buddhism called me up and she said, Jay, an enlightened Zen Buddhist priest from Japan 
is coming to Claremont for one year, and I would like for you to be his English teacher. And your job, he's had the awakening experience at his monastery, but his master says that's just the beginning. And what, you know, where Zen really finds its home is in daily life. And his master is sending him to America to experience the nitty-gritty of daily life, and you're going to be his teacher. Well, I did that. And um, I'm going to try to limit this to 12 minutes, Tom. But I think the story of how we first met is kind of interesting. He came to Claremont. There I was, a young graduate student. I went to where he was. My teacher called and said, go to such and such a location. I went there, and I'd heard that in Japan they bowed, and he'd heard that in the United States they sh shake hands. <laughs> and so I knocked on the door, and he opened it. And the first thing that I did was give the most awkward bow in the history of the universe. And he reached out his hand, and he touched my forehead. <laughs> And then, and then he laughed. He laughed. He thought it was hilarious. And I thought, wait a minute, you're a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, you've had the nirvana experience or something kind of like that. You're not supposed to laugh. You're, you're supposed to be very serious and calm. And I had a lot to learn. He was down to earth, on the ground, great sense of humor, always here, always now. And he took me into a room... And, and, he, and he said, would you like some coffee? And I said, wait a minute. I thought I was going to be your English teacher, but you're speaking English. He said, I've had six, six years of English. It's okay. <laughs> uh, he went to get the coffee, and he came back in, and it had built up in me. He's had this awakening experience. I haven't. I'm just a Methodist. <laughs> and so uh, it got so serious and I tried to small talk at first. So I said to him, uh, how was your trip? He said it was fine. I'm going to wait till that phone goes off. It's okay. But I want to give you the punchline. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Mine's done that three times today. So it had been building up in me. So we were sitting at the table, drinking the coffee, and I leaned over and I looked him in the eye. And I said, tell me, what do you know that I don't? Now, I don't recommend that as, a, <laughs> a, a, as, a, as an icebreaker. But I couldn't help it. I'd been reading Thomas Merton. I'd been taking this course on Buddhism. He'd had the enlightenment experience. I needed to know. What do you know that I don't? And he, without any hesitation, said to me, I know that I am you, and you are me too. But you don't know that. <laughs> that whole year... I understood ever more deeply kind of what that means. And, and Christianity helps. So it didn't mean that we all collapse into tapioca pudding. 
it didn't mean everything's the same. But it did mean that we truly are parts of one another, not apart from one another, whether we know it or not. And that includes our friends and the people we love, etc. It also includes the people we hate. It includes our, our enemies. The more I got to know him, the more I realized that insight, that awakening into interbecoming, that was his ultimate. You didn't go past that towards something else. That was it. Do I have one more minute? Probably not. No, really. So this was my first glimpse of what Tom was saying. Maybe, maybe his way of being religious was awakening to something that I had something to learn from. But also maybe my way of being religious, I believed in a loving God. I believed in the omnipotent God, to quote Tom Ward. Uh, I, I believed in a God who loves us and forgives us and cares for us and calls for us. That wasn't where he was. Maybe we were both right. But it was a big mistake for me to turn to him and say, ah, you're really talking about God, aren't you? Let him have his ultimate. Let him have his way. And let us. And we have so much to learn because the differences make the whole richer. So thank you for that opportunity to tell those stories. I want to invite you to the Q Christian Fellowship Conference on January 11th through the 14th, 2024 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Are you LGBTQ and Christian, or are you an ally of the LGBTQ community and looking to learn how to better uplift the lives of LGBTQ individuals in faith-based spaces? This conference is an annual gathering where LGBTQ Christians, parents, and allies gather for worship, fellowship, workshops, and keynote speakers, making lifelong friendships, experiencing healing, transformation, and hope, and witnessing the fullness of God's love and affirmation through each other. This year's speakers include Miles Markham, Bishop Joseph William Tolton, Kathy Baldock, Britt Barron, and special guests Flamie Grant, Matthias Roberts, and many more presenters who are deeply committed to this work, including this podcast, A People's Theology, which will record a live episode that you can attend. Register today at qcfconf.org with the code A People's Theology, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount off your conference registration. Q Christian Fellowship, cultivating radical belonging for LGBTQ Christians and allies through a commitment to growth, community, and relational justice. I hope to see you there. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jay. Uh, thank you for those words. Uh, and uh, yeah, Grace and I have got some questions and uh, super, super stoked to have this conversation. Uh, one of the first things that came to mind as both of you were talking was uh, it, it sounded like both of you grew up in kind of some sort of form of Christian fundamentalism. And I also grew up in that kind of form of Christianity. And one of the first things that uh, kind of set me on to what some people call deconstruction or my faith changing was when I realized that for 
for me to be a Christian meant that I was already in an interreligious relationship. Because if I were a Christian and claiming that I was following Jesus, that meant I was following a Jew. And that was a really big moment for me to realize, oh, like, what does that mean for me and my faith and me thinking that Christianity has all the right claims to truth uh, when actually the person that I'm claiming to follow is actually an entirely different religion than I am? Uh, and so that was a really important step. Um, I'm not sure if I have really any thoughts around that other than kind of how you think through, because both of you came from that Christian tradition, how you think through Christianity's uh, relationship that's already implied of it being an interreligious relationship, you know, with obviously uh, Christianity coming out of Judaism. Yeah, I think I, I grew up in a, some folks were fundamentalists in my home church, others were not. But the way we handled the Jewish issues is everything in the Old Testament, we called it the Old Testament, of course, that uh, Jesus endorsed, they got right. But then Jesus fixed all the bad stuff. And so the Jews had part of the truth. And so we couldn't, we couldn't say Christianity had all the truth and no other religion had any. The Jews got a little bit there, partly. And uh, part of my journey was uh, trying to figure out how to manipulate, or manipulate is the wrong word, how to navigate that, uh, that whole relationship. And to be honest, I'm still working on it. <laughs> I haven't got it all figured out. I have learned from Brad Artson and, and Shai Held and a number of other uh, Jewish scholars uh, that we share a lot in common. But um, as I was kind of saying in one of my points, I'm not so enamored with Judaism that I'm willing to switch teams, but I think there's something really valuable there. Two things. I grew up, I understand that you can go to hell for two reasons. You can be idolatrous or you can be lukewarm. I think I'm the lukewarm. In other words, I grew up in a Methodist setting, and in all honesty, I never heard about hell. I never. And I never heard about an angry, wrathful God. I never did. I grew up an open and relational Christian. And so when I read Tom's book on omnipotence, I think, I think that's the image of God I had from the get-go. So and then C.S. Lewis screwed that all up? Or? Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. The 60s screwed it up. <laughs> because they were so confusing. And so you needed an anchor. You needed something firmer, more firm than the lukewarm, beautifully lukewarm, lovingly lukewarm <laughs> tradition. But l- let me say, this makes me not... Qu- when I'm, I meet so many people that are battling with images of an angry God. And by the way, I think you battle forever. I mean, you may say, I don't believe that. But once you get burned, it's very hard to eliminate that completely. I've met, But that's not my war. <laughs> And, and so I don't quite understand that battle in people's... I believe it, but it's not mine. Uh, just a word about religions. I think that it's a Western category. I think it's a Western invention. I think if you go to indigenous traditions, if you go to China, if you go to Korean indigenous traditions... The category of religion, particularly if understood as a system of belief, 
It's just false <laughs> to, to the situation in which they live. Uh, so this is why some people don't use the word religion anymore. They use the word way. There are ways of being. And there's a Confucian way. There's a Taoist way. There's a Buddhist way. There's a Jewish way. But they're never self-contained. To think of them as circles inside of which there's something called the religion and outside of which there's something called not the religion, that's false too. They're very porous. If they're living cells, they are porous with things coming inside and outside all the time. So I have a little hesitation talking about, I believe this religion, but not that religion. It can sound as if there's a self-contained something that you assent to versus something you don't. I don't think that's quite true. Yeah, it seems like that category of religion seems to not just be a Western construct, but like also specifically Christianity, because I still remember when I first started to meet people of different religions, I was projecting my assumptions of what Christianity stood for onto those religions, thinking that um, those other religions also valued having the right beliefs and having the truth. And then I realized really quickly that they don't even have the same values in that regard. My turn? Okay. <laughs> So thank you so much, um, Tom and Jay. I feel like everybody here is either a Tom or a Jay. So anyway, thank you, Tom and Jay. So easy to remember. So it was very interesting to me. Um, so I grew up in a very fundamentalist um, tradition in my household. So my mother passed away, but my father's still alive. So I travel a lot, and he will call me up. He goes, where are you now? And then I'll tell him so-and-so. So I actually broke my um, kneecap in Palestine just a few weeks ago, just before the airstrikes. I, got, I came home. So he'll, where are you now? And then I'll tell him, and then he'll always say, people spend so much money flying you around all over the place, and you convert nobody. <laughs> So he is all into conversion, and everybody needs to be a Christian, and there, you know, someone's flying me around and wasting all this money on me. So, so that's where he is even now, my father. So it's really refreshing to hear um, both of your talks. So for me, the question is, um, why, like, if, like, you just talked about the way, and I think that's the way we should be talking because religion is a Western construct um, by scholars, etc., to categorize and make sense of whatever we're experiencing. So why do we need these different ways? I don't know. I want to hear. I have my own understanding, but I just want to know what you guys think. <laughs> why do we have these different ways? To make God richer, to enrich, to enrich the life of God. Uh, I, I, um, I once taught a world religions course, and I had a student from Malaysia, and then many Christians, a couple of Muslims, a Jew or two, and a heck of a lot spiritual but not religious. And the, my Malaysian student stood up one day, and she said, you know, in my family... My uncle's a Muslim, my mother's a Christian, my father's a Buddhist, and I'm a Confusionist. <laughs> but what she was really saying is I'm kind of a synthesis of all those three. And my, my class began to love her. 
because she, she talked a lot. She was very outgoing. And, you know, gradually, I think she started to teach the class. I'd I, I come in and say, to, well, I know this week we're going to talk about Judaism. And somebody said, yeah, what does Florence think? <laughs> By the time it was over on the last day, that cl- she was going back to Malaysia. And that class had grown to love her so much that somebody said, Florence, you make the whole richer. And I believe someone said, and I like to think that this was an evangelical Christian. Someone said, you make God richer too. And it's the idea that if there's a tapestry, if there's a rainbow, if there's the differences, they actually enrich the life of God. And that's part of the open and that's part of the openness of God. That God is made richer by cultural diversity. I like Jay's answer. I'm going to add to it in a way I think he'll agree with. Not only does it make God's life richer, I think it makes our lives richer. So I think religions are attempts to live better amongst ourselves and in the world. But I want to undermine something Jay said, and that is I'm skeptical that religion is really about ways and not beliefs. You maybe didn't say it quite that harshly, but sometimes the conversation goes that way. Like, oh, you Westerners, you're just talking about beliefs. Religion is just a way of life. Everybody I know who comes from traditions like the ones you mentioned, who think of religion as a way of life, they've got beliefs too. It's not like, you know, you jettison those. So I want to keep those two together, beliefs and ways of life. I especially see it in the, in the Christian tradition. How many people have heard someone say, well, I don't believe in religion. I have a relationship with Jesus, you know? <laughs> and I just think, and then you start. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Then you talk to them for very long, and they got lots of beliefs. They got lots of ideas. Um, so I, don't, I think you probably agree with me here that I don't think we can put all our eggs in either the belief basket or the way of living. Those seem to be interchanging or at least have aspects of both. Would, would you agree with that? I, I, I do agree. Um, yeah. There's a, a philosopher of religion named Ninian Smart who came up with a kind of uh, category. He's, you know, what is religion? And he talked about various dimensions of it. And, and one of them was belief. And one is ritual. And one is community. And one is direct experience. I think in, in Zen meditation, I don't think it's, it's, it's a matter of something different from belief. Uh, and one is myth and story. And one is ethics, or moral guidelines. I think they're all involved. Yeah, me too. And so when I say way, I really mean all of those. Oh, okay. But I do think in Protestant Christianity, it seems to me that belief is sometimes prioritized. Yes, I agree with you. Over yeah. the others, and that's the mistake. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, about, like, both of you mentioned about this idea that the life of God is enriched with this plurality, this diversity of religions, this multiplicity of religions. 
you, you both are obviously coming from some, some sort of open and relational process perspective. And I'm wondering why you think that particular perspective is maybe most helpful. I don't know if you would say it that way or not, but the most helpful in the way that you think about religious plurality. Why, why coming from like a process theological perspective or an, or an open and relational theological perspective, why do you think that might seem to be the most helpful way to think about all of this? We could talk forever on this one, couldn't we? <laughs> I'll come at it from the angle of love. Uh, Jay and I are both committed to love as central. And I'm probably, well, I, I won't talk about Jay. I, I'm the kind of person who, when it comes to my uh, way of living and life, I want to not only live my life in ways that are helpful and loving, I want to have a conceptual scheme that makes sense. Making sense of things is a big deal to me. Maybe not to all of you, but making sense is a big deal to me. And so I look for ways to uh, capture or navigate the love intuitions I have. And open relational process thought, that framework of thinking about a God who is always loving me and all of creation, not only influencing, but being influenced by. God also listens, not just is benevolent. This God changes in God's experience. In other words, God is not static and just sort of aloof and we do our own thing, but we contribute to the life of God, as Jay was saying. That framework not only makes sense of my intuitions about what love looks like in me and in the world, but what I might imagine God would be like. I obviously don't know for sure, and that's important to stay humble, but if that framework is going to make intellectual sense and also fit my inclinations, then it seems like a better overall framework than at least the other ones I know. I'll just add to what Tom said. I think a unique feature of process thought is its emphasis on the receptive side of God. And so, when, and so I sometimes speak of God as the deep listening. And, and I myself grow weary of people that only want to talk about love as doing things. I know that I feel loved, and I think you feel loved, when someone is in your presence and hearing your story and hearing your experience is a companion to your experience and is enriched by your experience. And I think that um, that's part of God. So one thing I like about Tom's definition of, of love is he talks about love both as active and responsive, I think is the word you use. I, I tweak responsive to mean receptive. But I think that's a, a big plus to, because so many Christians and Jews, when they talk about God, they just want to talk about what God does. I want to talk about what God feels and, and how God is affected. I mean, let, let's be clear. Good luck if you want a perfect world. Good, good luck if you want every problem solved. But what you do want is a companion to it. And so I think God is the deep companion is a plus on process. Could, could we be wrong? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I just hope that. So you talk a lot about love. 
And I feel a lot of love in this room. So thank you for all your love. And, but to me, it's so abstract in so many ways of how you're talking about it with, you know, Tom, you said you start with love and, you know, religion is about love and the way. But in reality, there's a lot of hate, right? Present U.S., so much hate among denominations, so much hate in a church, or a youth group, or an adult group, people are fighting and arguing. Um, The interfaith, you know, we can't get along with Buddhists and Muslims and anyone else. So I feel this is all a lofty talk, and we're all happy to be here, because everybody's drinking and having a good time, (laughs) and maybe you're meeting new friends, or whatever you're doing. I don't know what you're all doing, but anyway... There's a lot of love here, but in practice and reality, I find religion may be the basis of war. It was the basis of genocide here in America, the basis of enslavement here in America, of colonialism, of occupation, anything else, uh, patriarchy, a lot of things with women. You know, I find there's way more men in this place than women, so I'm so happy to see the other women and a lot more male voices. So there's a lot of problems with religion and with Christianity. But we're all talking about love, and it feels good. But how do we deal with all this horribleness of war right now, breaking out in different parts of the world, and here, Christian nationalism, and all these things with women's rights, et cetera, et cetera, immigration, refugees, climate change. What are we going to do? If we start with love, because I don't feel much love outside of this little room right now. <laughs> so tell me. Well, thank well, you. You can write another book on it. I don't know. <laughs> thank you so much for, for asking. Take it, Tom. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't have the prescription for all the ills of the world except the general kinds of things we've been talking about, which you want very practical. Well, the only thing, I raise it because you are starting with love. That was like your 10th point yes. or whatever. Yes. And you keep talking about love. You're defining love and love within religion. But I find the rea- I love it all. Right? I'm not going, but I'm just saying in reality, in our life right now, 2023 and our past American history, religion has been the basis. Well, I should say, just say Christianity has been the basis of, you know, we have used Manifest Destiny to slaughter 98% of the Native Americans, all in the name of God, all in the name of love, you know, conversion and whatever you want to call it, and then using Christianity to enslave Africans, using Christianity, people like me, indentured workers, because we're not not that great people, we're barbaric and unintelligent, etc. So it's been used in so many ways. Right? So it's been yeah. problematic. So I'm just I, raising it yeah. because I, like I love the basis of it, but I'm just saying in reality, religion has not been love. It's been about hate, or at least Christianity. I don't want to say for the other religions, but it, there's been a lot of hate and hate crimes. I'll say uh, three, three quick things. 
One is, I don't think religions are all about love. And I want to make very clear, uh, I think a lot of what we call religions are about meaning-making and communal identity. Uh, Meaning-making, meaning-making and finding a sense of identity in community. And I think those forces are, are permeate a whole lot of what we call religion. Uh, second, so I think it's a real mistake to say deep down religions are all about love. I think that's not true. I want to be clear about that. Second, I don't think God is very religious. Uh, in other words, if I imagine this compassion, this open and relational presence, this spirit that's both, both receptive and, and active in, in a luring way, I think religion is one way in which that spirit can sometimes work, but not the only way. And third, I think there's plenty that happens in this world. That, is, that violates that spirit and is painful to that spirit. So do religions foster tragedy, pain, evil, injustice, colonization, greed, cruelty? Yes, they do. So when I speak of the, the spirit in whom I try to place my trust, I think religion is only one place. Uh, White is interesting. He talked about the secular function of God. He said people can speak of God in secular, non-religious terms, meaningfully. I think sometimes secular people can have a better sense of that spirit, then can many fervent religious people. Since you had three things off, three things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. My first reaction to your uh, comments, Grace, about how poorly things have gone in the world and how poorly at least some Christians have acted is to say, and that's one of the reasons I'm against pantheism. I'm a panentheist and not a pantheist. In other words... Uh, I do think sometimes people are, especially former Christians, get sick of God out there and want to say that God is absolutely everything, a pantheist movement. If we go that direction, then God killed the Native Americans. God did want your people endangered. God did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every bad thing that happened, if everything is literally God, it's all God's will. And I think pointing out the problems in the world is a reason to reject pantheism, that everything is God. That might be an unpopular view in this crowd, but I'll put it out there. Secondly, one of my points was some parts of Christianity suck. <laughs> so it's easy for me to do this, but your, your good comments kind of lump all Christianity together. And I want to say, you know, there's lots of different Christianities. I'm not saying one of them is perfect and didn't have anything bad happen, but I think there are better and worse forms. And I'm more hopeful that the better forms won't be uh, pushing the kinds of um, evils that you, you mentioned or doing those. And then third, there's a 
trend today to say that religion is the basis for all the harm, the wars, etc. And, and sometimes the implied answer is, well, we should just get rid of religions. And I think of the 20th century, Lenin, Stalin, the communists who got, tried to get rid of religion and were some of the most killing machines in the whole 20th century. So I don't think the answer is to get rid of religions. I don't think Jay thinks that either. I think there are some forms of Christianity that are better than others, but I don't have like a neat, easy solution to your good question. <laughs> Thank you. Sort of along those lines, uh, one of the things that I like, as we've been talking about this, that keeps coming up for me is... Uh, like we've been talking about the way we should relate to other religions, especially for a lot of us who are Christians and how we should relate to people who have a different religious tradition. And the, one of the things that keeps coming up in my own mind is we actually in some way, shape or form, each, each and every one of us probably have some sort of interreligious relationship with ourselves. Uh, so it's not just about loving people of other religions, but loving ourselves as people who in some way, shape, or form actually change religiously. Uh, again, like I mentioned before, I grew up very fundamentalist kind of Christian. Uh, it sounds like each one of you have had some sort of change in your faith as well at some point. Uh, and so there is actually some sort of interreligious dimension to your own self uh, that you are having to relate to. And I'm wondering kind of how you think through that. Uh, you know, Jay, you, I know you've obviously explored Buddhism, but you still have that Christian background. Tom, I know your faith has changed a lot over the years, and so has yours as well, Dr. Grace. Uh, so I'm curious like how you think through that interreligious relationship within yourself and how you love yourself in that. Take it, Tom. <laughs> Pods one, PhDs, zero. <laughs> it was all a setup, you know that. It was a setup. We were bound to lose. Yeah. What? I mean, it's Grace, you know if you what? have I thoughts on it. I wasn't listening to his question, though. <laughs> <laughs> so repeat. Repeat, then I'll, I'll answer it. But I wasn't listening because I'm trying to formulate more questions. But, <laughs> so summarize your question because I wasn't yeah. listening. Uh, so because a lot of us have had changes in our faith over our life, um, there is some sort of even interreligious dimension to our own selves. And so how do we love ourselves uh, in our own kind of interreligious relationship that each one of us seem to have um, since we've all that changed our faith? That sound like your question before. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, I'll... Hopefully it's similar. It. No, you have an answer. I, I can say something. Go, go for it. No, no, you, no, you, you go, go ahead. No, you go, no, you go ahead. No, this interreligious thing in ourselves? Yeah, because we've, well, it seems like we've changed, uh, for a lot of us, we've changed in our faith. And so uh -huh, we. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. you know, faith is a journey. It's always a journey. Um, James Fowler, I think he came up with the, is it five stages of faith? Seven? Okay, seven. I guess he added two more while I was yeah, studying. Yeah, the seven stages of faith. And it's very clear, these different stages. And I think. That's how we are. We're never, we're not, you know, I am getting older, but I'm, I hope I'm younger than you, but I don't know. <laughs> but as we get older, you know, we don't think the same in anything, right? So why would we think the same 
about religion too. I think if we are truly developing and we widen our scope of literature, you know, we read different voices. We're not going to read the same white men, sorry, but that's been the tradition. Last 2,000 years, Christianity has been mostly white male theologians. But if we widen the scope and we read queer and people of color and women, I think we get a deeper understanding of who God is. So, you know, I was going to ask the question of who God is, but God is this infinite being. And if we, as these finite being, whether you have a PhD or not, or just a podcast, or just a podcast and a Twitter account or an X account, whatever it is now, we don't, we will never know the fullness of God. So, but we try. Um, you know, my students are like, oh, why are we doing this? I ask them the same question. I don't know why I'm doing it either. But <laughs> we are doing it because we want to make sense of our faith. And our faith from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years, years ago is going to be different. So we get a deeper understanding of God and creation and the way or whatever language we're going to use. And so we develop ourselves. And I think it's so important to engage in this interreligious. You know, I my parents were both from a Buddhist family. We immigrated to Canada in 1975. And we were told right away that Buddhism was wrong, was evil. You know, it's so horrible. So we converted right away. And because we're going to be the right people. But, you know, and majority of my family converted. It, it was like within a time span of 10, 15 years, all my family in Korea converted to Christianity. So, but, I, you know, I, there's a lot of me that's seeking these different religions because I don't think Christianity can articulate fully who God is. So we need other voices, whether it be people of color or queer or other people, but also these other religious voices. Because, you know, when Jay, you were talking about, you know, I am you and you are me, but you don't know that yet. That just kind of, you know, I was awake, but it just kind of woke me up a bit more. I had a lot of coffee, but it just woke me up because there's a lot of um, meaning and depth to that. And if we only understood that, I think that will solve patriarchy, that will solve genocide, that will solve um, all these, you know, racism and, and everything else, if we understood that. I think I have an answer for your, your question, um, and that was basically how we love ourselves in the midst of change, or something like that. Yeah. I try to love myself by avoiding what I think of as two extremes. One extreme was the former Tom, who has had a very rigid set of beliefs, who was certain about those, and was trying to convert everybody to those beliefs because they'd go to hell if they didn't switch to those. But then Tom switched it over to an extreme relativist. Every belief is just as good as another. It doesn't, there's no hierarchy. It's all up to you and your own perspective. And that didn't seem right either. That seems to me to allow all kinds of harm to be done in the name of, well, this just feels right to me, and this is my worldview. So I've been trying to love myself by finding some kind of a middle way, some ways of thinking that I think are more plausible than others, but I'm not certain about. 
And that's an ongoing adventure for me. I probably will never have it all figured out. I've got some things that I'm more committed to than others, but it's somewhere between extreme relativism and absolute certainty that I'm trying to uh, maneuver. I, uh, I agree with everything that both of you are saying. And I, uh, I taught a course in interfaith theology to college undergraduates. And I remember one class, it was a seminar class. And I, want, you know, I wanted them to understand something on the front end. You don't have to put your fundamental beliefs at the door, leave them at the door. You bring them to the table and you don't have to discard your tradition. You bring it to the table. And I said that enough times to where a student raised her hand and she said, but you know something? We're figuring out what we believe at this table. And when we hear somebody else talk, that affects how we think. And Dr. McDaniel, you may think we're familiar with our tradition, but we know a little bit about it, but not a whole lot. And so interreligious dialogue is a context for us to figure out what we want to be about. And so it's a context for creative transformation. They changed through the conversation. And I do too, of course. So the, uh, that was illuminating for me because I was being stereotypical. Hello, bring your tradition to the table, share it with others, listen to what they say, duke it out, and love each other at the end. And it was just false. That's, I think, part of the heart of the open and relational, one aspect of the open and relational tradition, and that is, to use the philosophical language, we're not essentialists. We think that there's a give and take and there's real transformation, even at the religious level. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. (laughs) This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule, attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. That, kind of, that conversation also reminds me of one of Tom's points about this idea that not all religions are the same and that they're not all climbing the same mountain. And what you're getting at there is that 
every religion has its own particularity around what it believes, what it practices, so on and so forth. And that, that particularity matters. And, uh, and, and that seems to be the point that you're wanting to drive home in that. And uh, one, what I'm curious about is why that particularity matters and why we shouldn't just generalize all religion as being the same, that it's all going up the same mountain. Um, because at one point in the interreligious conversation, in the religious um, pluralism conversation for many years, that was the kind of uh, core assumption is that uh, all religions are the same and they're all heading up the same path on the mountain or going up different um, paths up the same mountain. But that has changed recently because of this emphasis on particularity. Can you talk through a little bit more about why that matters so much? Do you know Ellie Wiesel? You know yes. who that is? Yep. Uh, I saw an interview with him, and he was interviewed by um, a, a person on television, and the person said, um, Wiesel was talking about the Holocaust. Can you say, for those who might not oh, be familiar, Elie who, who, who he is? Uh, was a survivor of the Holocaust, and his whole family um, died uh, in Auschwitz and other places, as I recall. And he wrote this very famous book called Night which describes his experience of the Holocaust. And he's really been a, he, he's perished now, he, a wonderful spokesperson as a Holocaust survivor. And so he was describing his life situation to the interviewer, and the interviewer playfully said to him, okay, I've got a, a bargain for you. You give away, you d- discard your Judaism, they'll discard their Christianity, you discard your Islam identity because that's getting in the way and we'll just have a common humanity, a religion of shared humanity. And Ellie Wiesel's response was, if I give away my Judaism, I give away me. That's who I am. You're asking me to give away me. And the interviewer, of course, got it. But people need particular identities. The bonds of rich community in local settings, that's part of the diversity that makes God richer. I I mean, I truly think God would be deeply impoverished if there was one world religion. Or even if there was no religion. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. <laughs> no hell below us. Above, above us, only sky. Now look at what happened to him. <laughs> I think I'll go nerdy just for a bit and talk Whiteheadian stuff for the Whiteheadians in the crowd. And forgive me if this doesn't interest you, but... Uh, Alfred North Whitehead speculated that instead of there being one ultimate reality, there were at least four. Some have increased it to six. Uh, One of those ultimate realities, the ultimate being, is God, but other ultimate realities include something called creativity, which is something like the ongoing force of time or energy or power in the universe. Another is what he called eternal objects, or what in some of you might have remembered from philosophy as the platonic forms. These are colors, possibilities, n- numbers, mathematics, etc. And when you begin to think like Whitehead, that there are various ultimates in reality, that if you bring them together, you can make better sense of the whole, 
you have a tool by which to think about various religions aiming at these ultimate realities and being truthful in their aim without being reduced to being the same one to another. I know that's a big set of ideas right there, and I know that saying there's more than one ultimate and not just God is going to freak some people out, but I'm not saying there's two gods. I'm saying there's four or five or six ultimate factors that if we bring them together, we can make better sense of reality. And that actually might be a nice analogy for thinking about various religions and what they aim for. I think before we open it up, maybe one more question. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think we're going to 12.15, so we're going to open it up after this one short question. So I think this is called interfaith. What are we on? What are we in? I don't Inter- know Interfaith called. dialogue or pluralism. something? Pluralism. Oh, okay, yes. pluralism. So how do we engage in this wonderful dialogue with people of other faith traditions? If you have any practical steps, first tell us why it's so important, and then any practical steps of how to engage. Because a few years ago, I took students to a synagogue. I, t- I teach um, interfaith dialogue, and they said this is the first time they've met a Jew. I was like, what? So people are not meeting people of other faith traditions, which surprises me a lot every time someone says that to me. So, yeah, if you have any... Yeah, thoughts about that. A lot of my um, interfaith work early on was just educational, taking courses. And that can get you a certain way. But for me lately, it's been more about friendships that's gotten me further. And it's actually in the friendships that has helped me to realize that not only is there diversity within Christianity, there's a lot of diversity in Islam and Judaism, etc. I knew that in theory before. But something about the friendships makes a bigger difference to me. I, I agree completely. Um, I'm a member of, uh, I was asked by a local mosque in Little Rock, Arkansas, to teach a course on the world's religions for the general public, Muslims included, at the mosque. They even said, Do you want an office? I loved the idea of having an office at that mosque. But they reached out, and still do, to the local community as a a place for dialogue and understanding. And Jews, and Christians, and Unitarians, and spiritual but not religious folks, they come to those courses. And they become friends. Because there's a meal afterwards. And I must say that the person I do this with, my friend Sophia Saeed, uh, after Gaza, Palestine, uh, Israel, she emailed me um, and she said, Jay, is my work been for nothing? (laughs) Is my work for nothing? Are these interfaith groups, don't they, can't they plant any kind of seed of, and by the way, the phrase she used was non-binary love. She said, if there's something that weeps with all hurting souls, these are her words, why must we feel that we betray one group to feel sympathy for the other group? Why can't we feel sympathy for everyone that suffers? Non-binary love. 
but I, you know, I, I said, Sophia, these groups. I said to her, I didn't. She knows I don't think God is all powerful. I will never convince her, and I'm not interested in doing that. But I said, these groups plant a seed of hope, and love, and sorry, <laughs> and, and and what what else can we do? Really, what else? Just to add before we break out, so I just wrote a piece. Um, I sent it to someone else, and they refused to publish it. So I, I, I published in Baptist News Global. I think there's some Baptists here. Yeah, thank you. So, but because at the end of the day, I always blame dualism for most of the problems. That Christianity itself, we're so dualistic, we've split everything. Heaven and earth, you know, body and spirit. So everything's divided. So when it comes to Gaza, like if you support then you are anti, like anti-Semitic. It just, we cannot. So I love that non-binary love because this, the dualism is problematic. And your friendship. So I fell in Palestine and I needed, we were on a tour. Like the thought that I actually did everything there with this broken knee is unbelievable to me. But one of the days, um, we were in this small little town and I can't remember where, and I really needed to use the bathroom. Like, it was like an emergency situation. <laughs> and then they said there's only a bathroom that you have to go really down these steep stairs. So they finally found a bathroom for me, and I realized it was a Palestinian house. I didn't know. I thought I was just going into some business. It was a house, and I felt so horrible that I had to use someone's, like, private and I was like so miserable. And they said, because I can't use the stairs. And then I thought, I'm thinking, you know, an American house, they would never open the door for me, you know, let alone let me use their bathroom. <laughs> but she let me in. And then as I was leaving, she gave me a glass of juice. And I thought, oh my goodness, I felt so bad to use her bathroom. But she was so happy that I used it and was giving me. I said, I don't, need, I don't need to. No, she insisted. She was so welcoming. And I think that's what we need, friendship and love. And we don't have that. So, yeah, let's break out into, yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, we've got a few, uh, we got a few minutes for questions. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm, oh, my God, there's so many hands already going up. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I, I saw your hand first. Um, if you just want to say your question out loud, and then I'll try to repeat it into the mic just because we are recording. So, and if for whatever reason I mess up your question, let me know. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, well, but yeah, say it out loud. So hopefully most of, most of the folks can hear it. Mm. Yeah, so the question is, that to what extent did Christianity change the understanding of love? And I tell you, scholars debate that left, right, and center. Um, as much, I agree with Jay that not religions don't all place the same emphasis upon love as some do, but I would make the claim that all major religions have some dimension of love, even if it's not the focus. One claim, and I'm not a good enough religious historian to verify this claim, but one claim is that Christianity's uh, interest, maybe an even novel contribution, is enemy love. Um, because there was stranger love and obviously family love and that sort of thing. Um, again, I can't verify that, but that claim is often bantied about. Yeah, so I guess that answers your question. <laughs> Other questions? I see one way in the back. Um, yeah, go ahead. 
So the question is uh, how, how um, this idea of non-binary love can be applied to dismantling racism. I think philosophically there's always a tension. It's a tension, I think, but really well uh, written up in Martin and Malcolm in America when it talks about the different approaches Martin Luther King and Malcolm X have. One, and it's a tension between saying, hey, we're all the same, which can easily erase difference, and the tension of saying, hey, we're all different, which can easily overlook what we share in common. Um, so I don't have a specific answer to your question, but that's the first thing that jumps in my mind. Um, Non-binary might, might undermine the differences, which are also valuable. If non-binary means we're not going to separate and, and overemphasize the differences, then I'm on board. But I don't want to erase difference. Can I just add, add to that? So when you're, you know, I, when you said, oh, we're not racist. You know, that's a very common response of particularly white liberal progressives, like way on the left side. The, yeah. So I always think, you know, when we're talking about racism and sexism, you know, these are all systemic. It's embedded in this American culture. It is how America was born. So it's because it's systemic, you... It's in this, just like, okay, a man, you can say you're not sexist, but by just by being a man and in this patriarchal culture, you somehow are because you embody it, right? So in the same way, that's what happens with white people. It's systemic. You're not, we're not out there to say you're racist and you're bad and you're bad. It's systemic, and I think if we understand it that way, it's a very helpful way to then say, okay, because it's systemic, how can I engage in dismantling racism and sexism? So white male privilege, you have to use it, give up your power, and say, how are we going to dismantle it? And I think it should be an everyday task because racism happens every day. Yeah, so the question is, like, how can we remain convicted about some of our beliefs, about some of our religions, and in the midst of that, knowing that there's going to be tension there, and, but yet also, like, how do we love one another in, in the midst of all of that? Is, am I kind of getting it close? Great. Let me make the question even more difficult, at least for me to answer, because I know the usual answer people give to your question, which is, speak your truth and let the other person speak their truth, and then say, well, we disagree. And, you know, that works in some cases. Like if I'm arguing something on the Trinity, I say, well, yeah, have your view, whatever. Um, <laughs> but if they say to me, yeah, but white men really should be in charge. And I'm like, okay, maybe I don't want to say you can have your truth and I'll have mine. You know, there's going to be some things that I just think are wrong. And I just... Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe my vision's limited. Maybe I need to be humble in admitting it, but I, I can't walk away and say, oh, well, you know, sure, let's cut off everybody's left ear because you said so. That's one view and as good as any other. So I don't have an answer. I just made it harder. That's, <laughs> I wrestle with this. I don't have a solution. <laughs> I'm kind of a living example of, of a Christian with Muslim friends and, and my wonderful friend, Sophia, um, she thinks the Quran is divinely inspired, and, and I don't. Actually, she loves Jesus a whole lot. 
and, and Muslims have a very high view of Jesus. So I think she might, might love Jesus more than I love Jesus. <laughs> I think that's possible. But I learned um, something from uh, Dr. Donna Bowman, who's here. And she said this years ago. She doesn't even remember saying it. But she did say, she said, a lot of conservative Christians have a need to be right and uh, uh, to feel vindicated. My views are correct. I'm vindicated. And I think you can disagree with people in serious ways, but get over a little bit of the need to be right. And, and you can kind of say, to, you know, I say to Sophia, Sophia, maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. Uh, we don't have to decide this. I love you anyway. I love you no matter what. And it's really reciprocated. So I don't think friendship, I'll use the word friendship, friendship transcends those kinds of divisions. And that doesn't solve Tom's problem. When, when the views have moral implications that you just find devastating. But there's a whole lot of issues, theological issues. You may be right. I may be right. I think this. You think this. We're friends. And, and by the way, where friendship grows is not just to say we're friends and, and nod your head. It's to do things together uh, and sometimes to help others together. So service goes a long, long way uh, towards sustaining a friendship, even amidst differences. I want to piggyback on that. I think for me personally, one of the turning points in getting past thinking I had to convince my Muslim friend, let's say, to have the right doctrine, is that I no longer believe in hell as eternal conscious punishment. I no longer think that people have the, who have the wrong beliefs are going there. So it like really eased up for me. Like once hell wasn't on the, on the line, I could say, okay, yeah, you can have your view of the Trinity, but you're not going to hell for it. And so that helped me. I don't know where you're at is on the afterlife, but that was helpful. Can I just add? Yeah, because I really loved your question because it's so concrete and it happens. And it's not just this Christian-Muslim dialogue or anything. It's within Christianity too. We fight, you know, with my dad as a prime example. I knew what he was going to say about the Gaza thing before he called me up to tell me what he was going to say, right? Because we are just in opposite sides of everything. So for me, I struggle with it so much that I've decided that I'm just going to use the spirit language. Because every religion, there's a... Con Pardon me? Yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> because this language of spirit is found in all these religions. And for me, it's so helpful. And whether you're religious or not, people have the sense of um, spirituality or something. I was, Pete Enns um, interviewed me a few weeks ago, and he says, Are you spiritual? Like, do you like to use the word spiritual? And I always say, No, because I don't feel so spiritual. But I love to use the language spirit. Because, and that's such a great entryway for any kind of dialogue among Christians and among different religions. Because we kind of have this concept of spirit. And when we focus on spirit, then the scripture, whether you believe this or that or other holy books, it, to me, it's like not that as important as when you enter and you talk about the spirit of God in whatever 
language you're going to use. And me as a Korean, we have our own language of chi. So whatever language, and I know in Africa you have, because I think Adam and I, we talked about it too. You're not looking at me though, Adam. Yeah, you're agreeing, okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so whatever language, the spirit language is so helpful. So I would suggest maybe that. I think we should leave it um, with that. I think that's a great way to close. Um, I know we're, we've got lunch here, so um, everyone, uh, go find a person who's not your religion uh, and uh, go hang out with them. But thank no, but, you so much. Yeah, but before yeah. you do that, we're doing the book signing, so please. Yes, that's true. Yeah, help me get rid of my books. <laughs> if you don't want to read it, buy it for a friend. Thank you so much. You can get connected with Grace, Tom, and Jay and their work in the links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>